Picture, if you would, that you are a Navy SEAL, and you're in San Diego, California, and something happened that you never thought would happen. The commanding officer calls you, summons you to duty, and says, five cruise ships are simultaneously sinking. The, there's, there's hundreds on board every cruise ship, and the first cruise ship is five miles off the coast, the second is 10 miles the third is 15, the fourth is 20, and the fifth is 25. And he says, you go save the people. And so you load up in the helicopter, and you have a decision to make. You're going to go to the first cruise ship because it's the closest. You go to the first cruise ship, you load people up on the helicopter, and then you go back to base. Now you have a decision to make. Are you going to fly over the needs of the first cruise ship in order to go to the second? Are you going to fly over the needs of the first and second cruise ship to go to the third? And you reason, man, we just don't have the time, the manpower, or the ability to go to to the third, fourth, and fifth cruise ship. So you go to the first cruise ship, come back to base, go to the first cruise ship, come back to base, maybe go to the second cruise ship, come back to base. But now let's tweak the commanding officer's command. Same situation, five cruise ships simultaneously sinking, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 miles off the shore. But now the commanding officer says to you, At the end of the day, I want there to be a representative from every cruise ship on this shore telling the story to the media about what happened aboard their boat. With that small little twist of the command of every cruise ship, now our strategy changes. Now we go to the fifth cruise ship first, then the fourth, then the third, and no cruise ship is to be visited twice before every cruise ship is visited at least once. God wants a representative from every cruise ship, literally. Now, this analogy, we're going to use it for the remainder of our time this morning. So, for the sake of it, let's just say that the first cruise ship represents North America. The second cruise ship represents Latin America. The third cruise ship represents Europe. The fourth cruise ship represents the Middle East and Asia. And the fifth cruise ship represents those with zero access to the gospel. So the first cruise ship represents North America. The second cruise ship represents Latin America. The third cruise ship represents Europe. The fourth cruise ship represents the Middle East and Asia. And the fifth cruise ship represents those with zero access to the gospel. The American church has done a fantastic job of reaching the first and second cruise ship. We've done an okay job of reaching the third. We've done a terrible job at reaching the fourth. And every Christ follower you know has no idea there's a fifth. We've done a a great job reaching the first and second cruise ship. We've done an okay job reaching the third. We've done a horrible job at reaching the fourth. And every Christ follower you know doesn't even realize there's a fifth cruise ship out there. Now, when we think about the definition of missions and what we're going for, we don't get to define it ourselves. If you went to first service, the last verse we left on was this verse. You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain because your blood you purchased men for God. And here it is. John looks up as he writes this on the island of Patmos, as he writes Revelation. John looks up and he sees one word when he looks up to heaven. He describes heaven with one word. Diversity. It's as if there's someone from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Involvement in missions is seeing a community of believers formed in every tribe, language, people, and nation. Being involved in missions means you are involved in seeing a community of believers in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
we get this idea, when, I, you know, when you think of the word nation, we have this understanding of like the 217 nations that we now see in our world. But when Jesus gave the command that we read in Matthew 28 earlier, go and make disciples of all nations, when he uses the word nations, a better, literally a better translation would be people groups. When Jesus gave the Great Commission and said, go and make disciples of all nations, he wasn't talking about our definition today. The way we describe a nation today is, oh, there's 217 of them. They have a prime minister, a dictator, a president, a currency, a military, clearly defined borders. They're a member of the UN. But when Jesus in 33 AD says, go and make disciples of all nations, he literally, the better translation is people groups. Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way, Acts, Romans, all the way to Revelation, anytime you see that word nation, you could just cross it out and put people groups. That's a better translation of what Jesus was talking about. Now, what's the difference between nations and a people group? Well, here's the nation Nigeria. Now, let's just say there's a church that you go to and they are having a mission trip to Nigeria. And you're like, I'm going. And your husband's like, you're crazy. And you're like, I'm going. And so you sign up. They say, if you want to go to Nigeria on the team, you have to be at three meetings before we leave. You sign up and you go to the first meeting. You look around and there's 12 other people in the room and the youth pastor who's leading the trip, because that's what they do. And... Um, the youth pastor gets up and says, hey, we're going to go to Nigeria. I just want to let you know it's going to be $2,400. You have to get the hep A shot, the polio shot, the yellow fever shot, and malaria pills. Two people get up and walk out, and, um, but you're staying. You're staying. And so you fly to Abuja, Nigeria, right in the middle. You land in Abuja, Nigeria. You get your luggage at baggage claims. You get in the van, and you're driving to your hotel with your group of now 10, and, the, and, and you look, all you're doing the entire time is this. And the team leader is like, are you okay? And, uh, and you're like, can I ask the driver a question? And, and he's like, yeah. And you ask the driver, sir, why are there so many churches? All I see is that we're passing churches. And he says, oh, this is the Yoruba people group. There's more, they're 86% Christian. And you realize, oh my goodness, I've spent $2,400, got the hep A shot, polio shot, yellow fever shot, malaria pills, to go to a place more Christian than my hometown. See, this is actually not what Nigeria looks like. Nigeria, though it's one country, is made up of 455 people groups. And so you landed right here in the Yoruba peoples, which is 86% Christian. Next to them is the Igbo peoples. They're 92% Christian. 21 hours north is the Hausa peoples, no known Christian, 99.9% .9 Muslim. 
But here's what happens. We are so excited that someone is doing something for missions that nobody thinks, what are we doing? We are so excited that someone's doing, oh my goodness, you're leaving self-absorption and you're going somewhere, great. And we are so consumed with the question, to where are you going, that doesn't help us. Asking the question to where you are going does not help us. We need to ask to whom. To whom? I'm going to Nigeria. Well, if you go to Nigeria, you might be working with the Yorubas or Igbos, which they don't need you right now. They're 85% Christian. You should go 21 hours north of the houses. To whom are you going? How many people groups? There's 455 in Nigeria, 1,200 in India, 865 in Papua New Guinea. How many people groups in the world? With the 7 billion people breathing right now, we're almost right at 17,000 people groups. There's about 17,000 people groups, or 16,699 to be exact. And what mission researchers have found is they've realized, man, we've got to give priority to those with little to no access to the gospel. We have to give priority to those with little to no access to the gospel. So... Of the 16,699 people groups, how many of them have less than 2% Christian? We're going to pull those out who have less than 2% Christian, identify them, and say these are our first choice to pray for, to give to, and to send missionaries to. We call them the unreached peoples, and out of the 16,699, there's right at 6,900 who are considered unreached. But this represents the fourth cruise ship. There's a fifth cruise ship that most people don't know about. To get on the fifth cruise ship, as mission strategists have seen, as they were going through the 6,900, they realized a few of them had one stat in every category. In every category, a few of them had 0%. 0% Christians in their people group, 0% missionaries in their people group, 0% Christ followers in their people group, 0% Bible translated in their people group, 0% churches in their people group, 0% hope for their people group. And we, what they did is, of the 6,900, they said, how many have literally nothing? And they pulled those out. If you were to write a one-sentence summary of the last 100 years of American missions, if you were to write a one-sentence summary of the last 100 years of American missions, here it is. We've done a great job sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians. We've done a great job sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians. And the areas of the world that have the least reached peoples on the planet are receiving the least amount of funding and the least amount of people. As we're so excited that someone is doing something in missions, no one stops to think, what are you doing? Where are you going? Is this the best use of your time and energy? Would you consider moving from the Abuja peoples to the Hausa peoples? Would you consider moving from this people group? Instead of going here for your mission trip and doing this, maybe this would be more strategic in light of the needs of the reached and the unreached. 
I used to think that God was interested in reaching as many people as possible. I would have probably argued that for you. I used to think God's, God's goal is to reach as many people as possible. I think I was wrong. I know I was wrong. That's not God's desire. What we see from Scripture is God's desire is first and foremost to reach people from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. Once, once there is a community of believers from every people group, then, he, then we can reach as many people as possible. See, if we were interested in reaching as many people as possible, we would send every missionary to Brazil. A Brazilian comes to Christ after seven weeks of sharing the gospel with them. A Muslim comes to Christ after seven years. If God wanted to reach as many people as possible, hey, forget the Muslim, Buddhists, and Hindus. Let's just go to Latin America. But that's not what happens. Instead, God says, I'm interested in reaching every tribe, tongue, people, and language. So guess what? We've got to shuffle the deck a little bit and give resources to the harder places. Yeah, it's going to take longer. It might not be as strategic. Your newsletters are not going to be as vibrant. But there's huge needs there. But instead, what happens? We do a great job sending Christians to reach Christians, sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians. I was, I was flying here through DFW Airport. I don't know if you've ever been uh, to DFW Airport. The DFW Airport in Dallas-Fort Worth, it's, uh, it's huge. And uh, I, I landed from Arkansas. I, 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 you know, I see that I'm in a different terminal. And the DFW Airport, you take the escalator upstairs, and there's a tram that runs the entire airport. I got on the tram, and it, it, there was no one really on the tram. It was me and this Randar TSA agent eating a sandwich. And, um, and so I look over. There's no place. There's four seats on the tram. Okay, and there's four seats at the very back of the tram, and I was like, man, this is awesome. I want to sit down. I walk over to the seat to sit down. I'm getting ready to sit down, and there's a sign on the seat. I look at the TSA agent. I then look at the sign. I look back at the TSA agent. I didn't look at the sign. Let me tell you what the sign said. This is what the sign said. These seats are reserved for those with the greatest needs. Why'd they put the word greatest? How different would that sign be? These seats are reserved for those with needs. I'm like, well, I have a heel spur. But instead, they say, no, 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 we must give priority to those with the greatest need. I'm like, wow, DFW Airport has figured out what the American church has yet to understand. We have to give priority. It doesn't mean they're more or less important. It just means we must give priority to those with little to no access. There's a difference between being unsaved and unreached. Let me tell you the difference between being unsaved and unreached. This is a person who is unsaved. Unsaved means I live in Wooster. I live in Wooster. I go to school in Wooster. And uh, I hear the gospel. My friend's a believer. I know a guy who owns a Bible. I've met a Catholic once. I can tune into Chris Tomlin or Kanye West now. I, you know, I can tune into these guys. And um, I just don't care about God. 
See, that's unsaved. You have access, you just don't care. Unreached means you live in Saudi Arabia, and if you want to meet a Christ follower, you can't. If you want to buy an Arabic Bible, there's no one around that can sell you one. And if you want to meet a Christian, you just can't. There's no church. There's a difference between unsaved and unreached. We live in an area that's unsaved, and we pray and we give and we go and give priority to places that are unreached. We share the gospel here and there, but we must give both priority. If you were in first service, we showed this at the last, again, the 1040 window. I used to think it was a tax form. It's 10 degrees up from the equator, 40 degrees up, and again, it stretches clear across Asia. As I mentioned in the first service, in this box is 86% of those who will meet, who will live and die and never meet a Christ follower. Every major world religion started in this box. This box is home to 65 countries of the world. And again, 99% of all the unengaged and unreached live in this box for the exception of the 180 million Indonesians. There are major obstacles to the gospel that stand in the way of us getting to the box. There are obstacles to the, bo- to the box. This represents some of the harder places to go. As I'm raising my six kids, I'm asking them, where do you think God wants you to be a missionary to? And I'm steering them to the box. Now, I just want to tell you, the day my daughter, who's now 12, comes to me and says, Dad, I want to go as a missionary to Egypt to take the gospel to, to Muslim women, When that day comes, I'm not going to be clicking my heels together in excitement. There will be tears and heartache and hardships. But I would rather that day come than she tell me, hey, Dad, I'm marrying the wrong guy, disinterested in God, and I'm spiraling downward in self-absorption. That's going to be a harder day. We need to direct how we live and how we give. To the greater need. There are obstacles. Man, a huge obstacle to the gospel is the tribal world. As I mentioned, over 800 people groups in Papua New Guinea, the tribal world is difficult to reach linguistically because they're all, they speak all different languages. My wife was learning how to translate scripture in Papua New Guinea. One people group over, there was another tribe, not one similar word in their language from the other tribe. They're difficult to reach because they, they don't have a specific holy book. Christians are the people of one book, the Bible. Muslims are the people of one book, the Quran. The tribal world, there's many books. The tribe my wife was with thought that they were birthed from banana plants. They're difficult to reach linguistically. They're difficult to reach theologically. I mean, friends of ours, Jack and Lel Crabtree, left four years ago from Arkansas to fly to the Wantakia peoples of Papua New Guinea. And I asked them, they, I asked them, I said, Crabtree, how long are you going to be in Papua New Guinea? He's like, what? I said, how long are you and your family going to be in Papua New Guinea? He says, I don't even understand the question. I said, how long are you going to be in Papua New Guinea? He said, Todd, our time in Papua New Guinea is not a time commitment. It's a task commitment. When the New Testament is translated in the Wantakias, we will come home. We think it's going to be between 11 and 13 years. A friend of mine was working among a people group in Papua New Guinea. 
and he kept receiving these letters from a neighboring tribe, and he showed me the letter. I have the letter. Here's the letter that came to him. What's going on? Where is our help? Have you forgot about us? We of the Sinoi haven't forgot about wanting a missionary. We carry a huge, heavy load constantly about this. We carry this heavy load because we fear for our lives. We know the Bible says you should come and tell us, us dark ones need it. How will we go to God's place if not? Only those who know will go. How will we know if no one teaches us? That's my worry. We need a missionary now to give us God's talk. But how do I respond as a white, wealthy Westerner? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not my savings, not my kids, and definitely not me. Surely someone else out there, surely someone else out there will deal with this. And what you realize is, actually, no. Everybody who's a Christ follower in churches thinks just like us. Someone else will deal with it. And so what happens? Nobody does anything. Another major obstacle to the gospel going forth to the 1040 window is the Hindu world. The Hindu world. When you think about India, there are millions of gods to choose from. I will share with you a story of one of the gods. One of the most popular gods in India is Lord Ganesh. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lord Ganesh, but there are probably 300 million Hindus who worship Ganesh every morning. And at the Bombay Stock Exchange in, uh, in Bombay, they chant the 108 names of Ganesh every morning before they start their day. So Ganesh is a very popular figure. When you meet a Hindu, you can ask him the story of Ganesh. Let me just tell you the story of Ganesh so you know it. Shiva, Lord Shiva, marries Parvati, a goddess. They have a son named Ganesh. Lord Shiva in Hinduism is the destroyer god. He goes on a far-off journey. He comes back several years later, and he's the destroyer god. He is trying to get back into his palace, but there's a guard out front he doesn't recognize. And so he severs the head of the guard. That's what he does. He destroys. Parvati, his wife, is inside. She hears the commotion. She comes running out, and she sees the head of Ganesh on the ground. Shiva didn't recognize his son Ganesh. He'd been gone so long. Ganesh was guarding the house until his father returns. They didn't recognize each other. And so Shiva just severs his head. So, so when Ganesh, you know, dead on the ground, Parvati comes out, Shiva realizes what's happened and vows, whatever walks by next, I'll take its head and place it on our son. And the first head transplant in the known universe occurred. Well, this isn't Apple Creek, Ohio. This is India. So it's not a squirrel or a dog or a cat that walked by. In India, when Shiva was placing the head transplant, it was an elephant. And so Shiva takes the head of the elephant and places it on Ganesh. And today, like I said, 400 million Hindus worship Ganesh. So you meet a Hindu and you're like, let me share with you about Jesus. And they're like, we love Jesus, but man, we love Ganesh. Ganesh. A friend of mine texted me from Delhi, India not too long ago. He, he was out front, and he was literally at a stoplight in Delhi, India, crossing a street, and he takes a picture, and he's like, Todd, in Delhi, India, they're trying to get everyone who's 18 and under to wear helmets. They're trying to pass a law 
in the government of India that you have to wear a helmet if you're 18 and under. Here's their signs for the campaign. Care for your head. Not everyone gets a replacement. And maybe God would have you think through how you live and how you give. You know, right here in the surrounding area, there's a branch of Ohio State. There's a college. That brings international students. That brings the nations. Literally, people from the 1040 window are in our surrounding areas. If you have eyes to see, you can see them. Another major obstacle to the gospel going forth to the 1040 window is the Chinese culture. When we went to China last August, we went into the orphanage. We met our son for the first time through a translator. I was talking to the orphan director, and I asked her, what religion would my son, Wei Zhao, be if he grew up in China? What religion would Wei Zhao be if he grew up in China? And the Chinese orphanage director said, well, in China, you can be three religions. You have access to three different religions. So he would, he would either be a Buddhist, a Confucius, or a Taoist. He has the option of being a Buddhist, a Confucius, or a Taoist. All three of those world religions deny the existence of God. All three of those world religions say there is no such thing as a God. In 1266 AD, a man who was an Italian explorer by the name of Marco Polo, more famous for his water games, he uh, crossed the mountains of Turkey and went into China. He gets into China and he meets the emperor of Asia at that time, the Kublai Khan. He spends several years getting to know the Kublai Khan. They become friends, and he tells the Kublai Khan, I must go back to Italy and report to the Pope at Rome everything I have found. The Kublai Khan says, take this letter to the Pope at Rome. The letter gets to the Pope at Rome, and it says, if the church will send 100 of its best priests to Asia, me and my entire court will convert to Christianity. Signed, Kublai Khan. It's been called history's most open door to the gospel. The Pope calls the decree out to the Catholic priests, and of course, everybody thought it was a trap. Nobody went. 22 years later, one priest named John Amante set out. It took him five years to get there. Now, 27 years later, he shows up. The Kublai Khan had died. Not my problem. Someone else's issue. The tribal world, the Hindu world, the Chinese world, the Muslim world. The Muslim world. 570 AD, a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdullah al Heshemite, that's his full name. We simply know him as the short name, Muhammad. He was born in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. During that time, in 570 AD, Muhammad. There was a plurality of gods to choose from. There were many gods to choose from. Muhammad chose to worship the god by the name of the Heshemite god. His mother and father die before he's six years old. He's, he becomes a caravaner across the desert. He takes caravans across 
the hot desert showing him how to avoid thieves and robbers. And on one particular caravan, Muhammad comes across people who call themselves Christians. And Muhammad said, how many gods do you worship? And the Christians said, we worship one God. And Muhammad said, no, there's many gods. And then on another caravan journey, he comes across people who call themselves Jews. And Muhammad said, how many gods do the Jews worship? And he said, we worship one God. And Muhammad said, no, there's a plurality of gods. And then he meets a woman who'd been widowed twice before. She was very wealthy. Her name was Khadijah. She was 15 years older than Muhammad. Her and Muhammad fall in love. They get married. And for the first time in his life, Muhammad had money. He wanted to know, is God one or is God many? Who's right, the Jews and the Christians or me? And so what he did, he began to fast and pray that the true God would appear. It is said he is sitting in a cave when he's 40 in 610 AD, and the angel Gabriel appears, from, appears to him and says the holiest phrase in Islam, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is one God, Muhammad, and you are his prophet. He didn't know what to do with this information. He told Khadijah. He spent 13 years preaching a message of one God to his people. After about 100 followers, his own people try to kill him because they were coming against, he was coming against their God. He flees with his 100 followers. He goes north about 260 miles. He lives in a city called Medina, and it is there that he had a problem. For the first time in his life, he's a refugee with 100 people. He remembers all the places that he'd been robbed and, and, and stolen from as a caravan router. And so he takes the men of the community, he gets their swords, he takes them to where he'd been robbed many times before, and when a caravan with money and goods comes by, they would jump out and give them three options. You have three options. You can pay a tax for protection, you can convert to our religion, Islam, or you can fight. Ten years later, Muhammad's now 63. He's got 10,000 followers. He goes back down to Mecca in a bloodless battle. He's crowned prophet and king. And that year, at age 63, he dies of a fever, leaving behind no written work and no known successor. And today, two out of every seven people breathing would die for that man. Two out of every seven people on earth are Muslims. And maybe God would use you to live and give and raise your kids to reach this incredible block of people who have literally zero access to the gospel. And then finally, the Buddhist world. The founder of Buddhism, I used to think his name was Buddha. I was wrong. His name was Siddhartha Gautama, and he was a devout Hindu. The founder of Buddhism was a Hindu, go figure. And he became disillusioned with Hinduism because he realized Hinduism doesn't answer the suffering question of life. Why do we suffer? So at age 30, he had his first son. He's married. He realizes to find the meaning of life, he must move from home to homelessness. He kisses his wife. He kisses his kid. He never returns again. He travels in 563 B.C. from Nepal south to India. Ironically, had he gone west... He could have sat under the feet of our prophet Jeremiah. He did not go west. Instead, he went south, and he sat under the feet of other school learners of religion, became disillusioned with all religion, decided he's not going to get up until he finds the meaning of life. He sits under a tree for 49 days, living on a grain of rice a day. On day 49, he passes out, and when he passes out, he sees the four noble truths of Buddhism. 
when he comes to, someone starts yelling, enlightened one, enlightened one, enlightened one. Well, they weren't speaking English. They were speaking Pali. How do you say enlightened one in the Pali language? Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. So Siddhartha Gautama drops the name Siddhartha Gautama, takes on the name Buddha from age 30 to 83, travels North India, gathering people into groups of nuns and monks, teaching them the Four Noble Truths. And at age 83, someone puts a bad piece of meat in his beggar's bowl, and he dies of food poisoning. And today, there's 650 million Buddhists. Mauritania, 99% Muslim. Yemen, 99% Muslim. Maldives, 99% Muslim. Turkey, 96% Muslim. Thailand, 85% Buddhist. Cambodia, 83% Buddhist. Myanmar, 80% Buddhist. Bhutan, 75% Buddhist. India, 75% Hindu. Nepal, 75% Hindu. Uh, I live in Apple Creek, Ohio, and this is so far removed from my reality. I am completely busy. We have soccer three days a week. We have volleyball on the weekends. I get home at 5.30 if I'm lucky. I then have to take my kids to practice. I get home and get the meals cooked. I'm trying to just get an hour of me time a day, and I'm not managing that. We're doing more than most spiritually. We go to church and tithe. <laughs> I mean, there is zero connection between me and the 1040 window. Zero. It has no bearing on my life at all. I don't care about it. I don't have time for it. It's not even in my world. I don't even have a heart for it. Like, I have zero desire. And the vast majority of Christ's followers in our lives think like that. Instead of saying, I'm not asking you to raise $2,400, get the Hefe shot, polio shot, yellow fever shot. I'm not asking you to put your house in the market and move to a different zip code. Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you would see the nations here, around, and view them as different. Approach them, invite them into your home for Thanksgiving. I'm asking that you would have a 1040 window map in your kitchen or in your living room. And that you would tell your kids, let's pick a country and pray for the world. I'm asking you that when you read the Bible, that you're looking for God's heart for the nations. I'm asking you, to find workers from this church who are going out to the 1040 window and give sacrificially. I am asking you to get down on one knee to, with your child and say, man, we are praying that God would use you in the 1040 window. We don't know how yet, but he's gonna use you. And that's just a family expectation. We, hey, I wanna let you know, son, we're praying that God uses you in the 1040 window. If he doesn't, he, it's his purpose. He can pull you back and you can stay here. That's fine. But our, 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 our hope is that you would have the privilege of going. But instead, what do we do? None of that. None of that. 
and we live in isolation and act like God's world doesn't exist. And our problems are the only problems that matter. Every blue dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Christians. Every blue dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Christians. Every green dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Muslims. Every green dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Muslims. Every orange dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Buddhists. Every orange dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Buddhists. Every yellow dot you see, every yellow dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Hindus. But what do I do as a white, wealthy Westerner? (laughs) So? We don't need the term 1040 window to see it. So, I want to invite you back, not only if you haven't been to first service, come to second service, but then from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the history of what God has done in missions, as well as what he is to do in the future, what he's going to do with us. As the pastor mentioned, I brought a couple of books. Um, 100% of my proceeds to book sales go to needy children in my home, and... um, So if you're interested, go out to the foyer, grab a cup of coffee. The first book is called The Abrahamic Revolution. It's everything we talked about in the first service and everything we talked about right here. So the middle section is all the major world religions. All the maps you saw are in here. Uh, The middle section is the major world religions, how you can share the gospel with them and how they view um, the end times and spiritual things. And then from four to six, we're going to look at this book. Um, This is a book I wrote called In This Generation. And it's just the obstacles and excuses that keep us in isolation. And so what about debt or family or finances or kids or, you know, what what happens to singleness and how do I know where God wants me to go and is hell even real and how do I reach the world here? So anyway, those are available out in the foyer. Let me just conclude with telling you a story. Um, So... My wife and I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and uh, uh, we, we go to church every Sunday because it's the right thing to do, and we're driving to church, and I just thought, you know, how far is church? It takes us 12 minutes to get there, but I hit the odometer one Sunday because, you know, I was just going to, you know, shake things up. I hit the odometer one Sunday, and I just, kids are buckling the car. We start driving, and um, as we're driving, I look at my wife, and I was like, wow, okay, we're two miles into the journey, and there's a church there, and I said, Jess, why don't we go to church there? That's two miles from the house. We could sleep in an extra 10 minutes. And she said, uh, oh, we didn't like the worship. And I was like, oh, yeah, we did visit, didn't we? So we kept driving, and uh, 3.4 miles, I looked down, and I was like, wow, there's another church. I said, Jess, why don't we go to church there? Oh, just the preaching. It didn't resonate. And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then um, we kept driving, and I was like, oh, my goodness, 5.2. Look, 5.2 miles. There's another church. Why don't we go there? And she's like, we, we, the kids care. It wasn't good. We just felt like they weren't, you know, they were all, it just wasn't good. And I was like, oh, yeah, we, we did visit that church, didn't we? And wow, 6.1. There's an, why don't we go there, you know? Oh, parking, it was hard and the overflow. And we just did I think you're right. And so we drive 7.2 miles to church. 7.2 miles. And as I drove 7.2 miles, I realized I said no to eight churches. For one out of whatever reason there was. 
Well, my wife and I, we put on backpacks and we started in Sana'a, Yemen, went over to Muscat, Oman, went up to UAE, went into Doha, Qatar, went up to Manama, Bahrain, and into Kuwait City, Kuwait. We spent a year doing that. I Google mapped how far we went, 1,982 miles. We didn't pass eight churches. I pass more churches going to my church than I do in the entire Gulf Arab nations. And so what does that mean for us? It means we don't stop reaching our near neighbor, but we just look up and have eyes to see those from afar. And we say, you know what? With my life and my kids and my gifts, I'm going to live and I'm going to give not only to reach this community, but I am also targeting the other. Thank you.